This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Biden administration has been pushing for more federal contracting dollars to go to small and disadvantaged businesses. The specific goal is for $100 billion additional dollars to such businesses over the next five years. For how agencies can start to reach this goal, the acting director of the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, Leslie Field. Ms. Field, good to have you back. Hi, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. And just if you would briefly review some of the parameters, because there are percentages for small businesses and then there are percentages for SBDs within the small business ranks. Exactly. So according to SBA's scorecard, the federal government spent $145 billion in fiscal year 20 with small businesses. So that equates to about uh, 26% of eligible dollars. A subset of these awards go to small disadvantaged businesses or SDBs. And in FY20, that was almost over $59 billion and about 10%. So that helps to sort of understand what those numbers mean. But agencies are also working to meet or exceed their goals for the other socioeconomic small businesses, such as women-owned small businesses, service-disabled, veteran-owned small businesses, and of course, contractors and hub zones. Got it. And so I've spoken to some agencies that are already above that 26 slash 10. I think Homeland Security is like 35 slash 17. So we know what's possible. And what is your feeling, having watched procurement all these years, what are some strategies agencies can use to get to those higher numbers if they're not there already? So we've got lots of tools and guidance out there, and I think there are really a couple of means that we are looking at with respect to the increased goals that the president has set. And I think they're focused really in two areas, data and engagement. And we've been working with experts in SBA and GSA to better understand how we can use existing information and maybe new information about small businesses in the U.S. economy to support the increase in new entrants that we're really looking for. So we need common definitions for that. We need better forecasting tools and we need to provide better information to the marketplace so they know what we're looking for and they will be anxious to do business with us. And so we're not really just looking outside, but the suppliers who need the information, they need really better forecasting tools. Every agency needs to do procurement forecasting. Um, What we did find when we were working with our industry liaisons, that those tools were sort of varied. And we want to make sure that they're quality tools and the information is easy to find so that those opportunities reach all of the marketplace. Is it possible for the procurement dollars and the spending dollars that agencies gather under the Data Act, or in theory they do and have been for quite a number of years, can that somehow be tied to the federal procurement data system so that you can match up where the dollars are going? So the federal procurement data system, or FPDS, feeds USA spending. And so we are looking, if you read our recent memorandum, we are looking at ways to make that information USA spending a little bit more user-friendly so that the information is more usable. And that's part of a larger strategy that we're looking at around high-definition acquisition. And so that data is critically important. We've heard that from agencies, and we've certainly heard that from the small business community. But that can help you drive more dollars to existing contractors. I think the spirit of this, though, is also to bring more companies that we're not doing business with at all or may not even be aware of into the federal market. Exactly. And so we were looking at the data just to make sure that we were reaching perhaps folks that had not done business with us. But we also really encourage engagement. We've talked about our myth busting series before. That industry outreach can be critical, especially in attracting new entrants to the market. We also want to make sure our small business specialists and our team at SBA are engaged. We also want to focus uh, on Ability One to identify opportunities to increase employment for persons with disabilities. 
So, but we are looking at data-driven outreach just to make sure that we've got online dialogues and crowdsourced activities so that we can look at what the industry and what the marketplace is saying and then using supplier feedback surveys, right? So once we get some new entrants into the market and even with existing entrants, we can use our acquisition 360 tool to find out how that experience went so that we can make improvements if necessary. And what about the idea of maybe training contracting officers to help new entrants not feel like they're facing the most complicated thing ever invented by humankind, which is doing business with the federal government? It can be formidable, and it does take a team. So we're looking at building a procurement equity network. So, of course, it includes the contracting team and the program managers, as it always has been. But we want to bring in our industry liaisons that were appointed a few years ago. We want to bring in our small business specialists, our acquisition innovation advocates to help us use more flexible and more business-friendly practices, right? So folks will want to do business with us. We want to bring in our ability one reps and our category management team. So when you think about the team it takes to run an acquisition, we want to bring in some new voices so that uh, new entrants and perhaps folks who have thought about doing business with us but haven't feel that they're supported and provide them the information that they need to make that decision. We're speaking with Leslie Field, Acting Director of the Office of Federal Procurement Policy. And what about the big, famous, and very popular and refreshed government-wide acquisition vehicles, such as operated by GSA, NIH, and the rest of them, CIOSP, NASA has them? Can they somehow be bent to this effort? So GSA, NIH, and NASA, all the GWAC holders have been and will continue to be key strategic partners. And we brought them in to help us run the new-ish government-wide IT vendor management office, which serves as a resource to agencies for acquisition intelligence, data, supplier relationship tools, all those kinds of things. But the IT VMO has initiated a couple of efforts uh, to break down those small business barriers. They've hosted webinars to share information on category management, on IT acquisitions, on the IT government-wide contracts, cybersecurity, supply chain risk requirements. So doing, again, more outreach, more targeted outreach. It can be incredibly helpful. In addition, those vehicles need to demonstrate how their best-in-class or big solutions are supporting small businesses as part of their semi-annual review. So it's always a focus. Uh, you know, for example, the 80 stars program is a terrific example of how we can advance equity and build support for the underserved community while practicing good stewardship. And I think over the last 10 years, the STARS program has supported over 15 billion in agency orders to small disadvantaged businesses, and they have over 400 highly qualified SDBs for a wide range of services. So they can be terrific places for these SDBs um, to to start and to thrive there, because we also want to make sure that they are building their resilience as they go. So this is a terrific way. And the rise of professional services has brought a lot more minority-owned businesses into the fold because there's less capital requirement to start up a company like that relative to, say, making you know, gyroscopes or something, high-tech manufacturing. So is it your sense that this whole initiative of increasing the percentage of dollars going to small and disadvantaged companies can also extend to manufactured goods as much as professional services? Absolutely. And I think this initiative is really meant to cover the waterfront of all the things that we buy. The government, we're the largest buyer in the world. We buy everything. So we want to make sure that those opportunities are available to a wide 
marketplace. And so we encourage agencies to consider ways to engage with other underserved groups, such as individuals with disabilities, historically black colleges and universities and minority serving institutions to promote supplier diversity throughout, for whether it's common requirements or whether they are unique to certain agencies. We want to provide sort of a breadth of experience. And there are certainly lots of opportunities out there. But again, I think our outreach and our data and training the workforce and making sure everybody has the information they need is going to be key to doing that. And having only read the first 47 pages of all of the initiatives here, (laughs) let me ask, does the subcontracting done by large prime contractors, that also counts here, right? So subcontracting does count. Um, Well, and it does count, I think, in gaining experience and creating those partnerships. uh, And it really is a great way to do business development and, again, form those alliances. We're always looking for ways to strengthen this. And the goals, of course, are at the prime level. But subcontracting is a very important step, and it's an important part of business development and resilience. And so we are always looking at ways to improve how that's measured, how those opportunities are made available, what the communication strategy looks like. So again, an important part of it, but uh, these goals are focused on the prime contracts. And are you advising agencies to keep their requirements as strict as they need for their mission and not to alter requirements or lower requirements solely for the purpose of bringing in a new company? but you'd rather have companies rise to the level of the requirements? Exactly. So, well, we want to make sure that the requirements are written properly to promote competition, right? We've always been advocates for that. So making sure that we're not being too restrictive um, unnecessarily. But we have found that the innovative business practices that the procurement innovation labs, such as the pill over DHS, are supporting can help us think through whether those requirements are necessary, whether they need to be refreshed based on new technology or new ways of doing business. And so there are lots of ways to have the marketplace help us think through those requirements before we put them on the street. And whether those are industry days or supplier conferences or a number of strategies for making sure that those requirements are written properly so that they maximize competition to the extent that's possible. So I think we want to make sure that we've got that team that we talked about engaged right up front to make sure that those requirements are really what they need to be to promote the widest range of competition. And just a final question returning to that idea of the procurement equity network. Almost sounds like a game show. But (laughs) just who's on that and is it a virtual thing? We're building strength in the agencies. And so the equity network, as we think about it, and, and of course, as we get more experience with this, we'll probably bring in some more voices, but the industry liaisons are important. That's a fairly new position in the agency. The small business specialists, which they have provided a valuable resource throughout, so they're part of the team. But we'd like to bring in the acquisition innovation advocates again bringing in new ways of doing business within the flexibilities that the FAR allows. Our category managers know a lot about the marketplace, so let's bring them in at the appropriate time. And of course, the contracting team, your program manager, your contracting officer, your contract specialist, and your COR. So bringing all of those folks together, whether it's part of an acquisition services workshop and making them connected at the beginning so that our strategy really reflects what the marketplace can deliver. And Leslie, your name is almost indistinguishable from OFPP. Are you looking forward to training your latest appointee if and when the Senate gets around to confirming the poor guy? I think I have the greatest job in the world and a terrific team. So I'm incredibly fortunate to uh, have been able to sit here for all of these years. But we're very much looking forward to having Biniam Gabray, who is the president's nominee for the administrator position um, on board. So we're looking forward to all of that. And I also just wanted to thank the OFPP team, but also all of our agency colleagues, uh, GSA, DHS, everybody who has helped us think about our NSBA, of course, thinking through our uh, advancing equity in, uh, in procurement.
they're all part of the team. Leslie Field is acting director of the Office of Federal Procurement Policy. As always, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, It it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my 
leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it 
you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. It's a well-known fact that good sleep leads to a happier life. Okay, maybe that's not a fact fact, but don't you just feel amazing after a great night's sleep? Like the first night back in your own bed after traveling. It's time to demand more first night back kind of sleep. Stop tossing and turning and talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day. And visit SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.